We have a couple of passages to read this morning from the Bible before Pete comes to speak to us. Um, And the page numbers are up on the screen if you would like to look through them. They are quite short, um, but if you have a Bible, it helps to follow quite often. So the first reading is from Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three three strands is not quickly broken. And the second reading is from the New Testament, from um, first letter of John, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Well, friends, good morning. Great to be able to open God's word with you again today. Let us pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that right now you will minister to us through your word and by your spirit. You have brought each of us here today, Father, for reasons that you know. And we ask that you will do with each of us what you will. Help us see Christ, the source of joy the source of life. And in his name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you know that happiness is a billion-dollar industry. Do you know that? There's a reason that the Farrell Williams song, Happy, went number one in 22 countries last year. There's a reason that there are hundreds of authors out there writing on happiness, including the Dalai Lama. There's a reason that there is a whole area of study these days you can do called positive psychology, Uh, And the godfather of this area is a guy by the name of Martin Seligman, and these are three of his books, three of his many. It's pretty clear that God has wired people for happiness, for joy, for pleasure, for contentment, for positive emotion. Now, we see this in the Bible everywhere, uh, but Proverbs 15.30 expresses it really well. This is what it says. Light in a messenger's eyes brings joy to the heart and good news gives health to the bones. Now, like old Proverbs, it's a bit tricky to know what it's actually saying, but it probably means this, uh, that great relationships bring joy, real joy, to a person and that good news about anything is what makes us feel alive. Let's be clear, happiness, joy, delight, pleasure, contentment, God has made us for such things. But we have a problem. You see, one of the challenges about speaking about happiness or joy is that philosophers have come to realise that these emotions, these states of being, do not adhere to normal principles. Let me explain. Uh, If you want to have a lot of money, you go out and you earn it. And as you earn it or inherit it or collect it, it adds up and you end up having more. 
Uh, if you want to get fit, you start to jog. And the more you jog, the longer you jog, the harder you jog, the greater your fitness will be. So it stands to reason, doesn't it, that if you wanted to be more happy or joy-filled, then you'd go out and grab it. You'd partake in activities that make you happy, you'd engage in events that bring you pleasure, and the net result would be that you'd be more happy and have more joy in your life. Right? Wrong. (laughs) It actually doesn't work that way at all. And philosophers have called this the paradox of pleasure. Uh, uh, sorry, the paradox of hedonism, hedonism being seeking pleasure. Uh, and, and here's the surprise, that seeking pleasure does not make you happier. This is how the American politician William Bennis has described this phenomenon. Happiness is like a cat. If you try to coax it or call it, it will avoid you. It will never come. But if you pay no attention to it and go about your business, you'll find it rubbing against your legs and jumping into your lap. Uh, Or more seriously, hear how the philosopher John Stuart Mill describes this same uh, phenomenon in his autobiography. But I now thought that this end, one's happiness, was only to be attained by not making it the direct end. Those only are happy who have their minds fixed on some object other than their own happiness. Aiming at something else, they find happiness along the way. Ask yourself whether you are happy, and you will cease to be so. So, you ready? Here's our challenge. If God has wired us for joyous people, and yet we find that if we search for it in and of itself, we won't find it, then what is the the something else uh, that Mill speaks of that we should aim for, that we could aim for, that will result in us finding happiness, joy, peace and contentment? That's the first question. But there's a second one. What is the special place of marriage in experiencing such positive emotions, such joy? Well, these are the two questions we're going to wrestle with today as we consider Jesus brings joy to marriage. Now, let's turn to our first question. What is this something else that we can aim for, that we can do, that will bring us a sense of joy, of peace, of contentment and happiness in life? Well, you won't be surprised to hear me say that I think Jesus actually shows us the best possible answer. And the answer is something that you see, not by reading your Bible closely, but by taking a step back from your Bible. Uh, not by reading one verse in particular, but by taking a step back and looking at, a, at the broad way across the scriptures people are told to relate to one another. And it could be summed up by the phrase, other person centeredness, which has also been described as seeking the good of the other. Whatever it is, it's the opposite of selfishness, of self centeredness, of living for yourself. It's living for others. Of course, this is absolutely how Jesus lived and how he encouraged and uh, called his followers to to live as well. But the clearest way we see this described or the place we see it described is when John, the Apostle John, describes what love is. And what he describes is, he essentially says, if you want to know what love is, just look at Jesus. This is what he says. It's on the screen. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, what he says here is this. Love is not merely that feeling that you feel towards another person. It's actually much more concrete than that. Love is seeking the good of another first. Love is that God sent his son to die in your place, on your behalf, on a cross, so that you wouldn't have to. 
Love is perfect, other person-centeredness. Someone laying down their life for someone else. Now, the Apostle Paul, you won't be surprised, well, he says the same thing differently in another place. This is Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others better than yourselves. Now, let's be clear. Uh, We are not good at this. (laughs) Living for others? I'm pretty busy with my own life. Consider others better than yourself? That's just hard work. And this is the opposite of the way the world essentially tells us to live. It's counterintuitive, right? If you want to find joy, then forget about you and focus on others. Essentially, friends, this is the blueprint, the Bible's blueprint for relationships. This is the way God has wired the world. And here's the thing that might surprise you. You do not need to be a Christian to live like this. This is God's wisdom for all people, Christian or not. And that will be why you'll have observed, uh, observed some people's marriages, people who are not Christians, but these people who seem to have these wonderful marriages. What they have done is they've stumbled upon this truth that God has wired into the way relationships work, that as you live for others, life works. As husbands serve their wives, as wives serve their husbands, marriages flourish. And this is also why being a Christian does not guarantee you a good marriage. Because you might well be a Christian, but you might choose to be selfish. And your marriage, your relationships in general, will struggle. But here's the thing. As we learn to put others before ourselves, as we learn to live for others, we will find a joy in life, and certainly a joy in marriage, that you actually can't find any other way. Let me address one thing that will be going through some of your minds right now. Some of you might be thinking, I'm not sure I can do that. You don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. My my marriage was great at one point. That's why we got married. But these days, it actually looks very different. We don't talk like we used to. Uh, The kids are our focus. I'm not even sure I love my spouse like I once did. How can I actually put my spouse first when I'm not even sure I love them? Now, that is a very human, real and important question. But listen to what C.S. Lewis says about that. He says this. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbour. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying even if you don't feel like you love your spouse, that is, you actually have no intention or desire to put them first, then no matter how you feel, act as if you love them. And then what will happen is that your heart will follow your actions. Okay, so that's the first part. What we've seen is that if we learn to live for the sake of the other, if, if we learn other person centeredness, we're going to find a joy uh, in all our relationships, particularly in our marriages. But what else does, or how else does Jesus bring joy to marriage? Well, we're now going to look at two things, and this will be the shape of the rest of the sermon. Uh, we're going to see that Jesus brings a shared purpose to marriage, and we're going to see that Jesus brings a shared power to marriage. Jesus brings a shared purpose and a shared power. Uh, Jesus brings a shared purpose. About uh, a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, I caught up with a mate uh, from this church who's a Christian. I meet up with him every week to read the Bible and pray and talk about life. And, and I was talking to him about this sermon topic that was coming up. And I said to him, look, let me just ask you, what actually brings you joy 
in your marriage. Now, let me be clear about this guy's marriage. This guy's marriage is just a real marriage. He's a wonderful Christian man married to a wonderful Christian woman, and they fight. Uh, and they don't, and sometimes they, lo- I mean, they, they love each other, uh, but sometimes that doesn't always get expressed, and they've got kids, and they're tired, and... Is that familiar? That's them. So I said to him, what brings you joy into that? And he said, you thought about it? He said, I, I guess it's the fact that my wife and I have a shared hope for the future. He went on to say that, that hope was Jesus, that forever him and his wife would actually... Sing Jesus' praises, that they would live for him. And he talked about what really brought him joy was knowing that both he and his wife had that same vision of the future together. And this reminded me of something that the American author Tim Keller says on friendship. Not on marriage, but on friendship. He says a very similar thing. Listen to this. He describes friendship like this. Friendship is a deep oneness that develops when two people speaking the truth in love to one another journey together to the same horizon. Now let me paint a bit of a picture here of what I think Keller's saying. I want you to imagine that you're standing in an art gallery looking at this huge, wonderful painting on the wall and you're just lost in the detail. You're about a metre from it and, and things are jumping out and you look in this little corner and then, and then you spot something up here that relates to it and you're drawn to that, right? The painting has captivated you. And all of a sudden, you just notice that there's someone standing next to you equally lost in the painting. Equally captivated by the detail. So what Keller is suggesting is that it's that shared love, that shared captivation of an object beyond yourself and beyond the friendship that becomes the basis for the friendship. You know, our first reading today was from this great little book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes, and this little section that was read describes friendship. This is what it said. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls down and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. It describes friendship. But did you notice that friendship here is described by what? Shared activity. In fact, three examples of it. Helping you when you fall over, pretty helpful. Staying warm on a long, cold winter's night, like last night. Taking care of yourself in times of trouble. See, a friend is one with whom you share something beyond the relationship, something beyond it. And here's the thing. If the author of Ecclesiastes and Tim Keller are both right and that a shared horizon is the basis of friendship, then how much more for marriage? And my brothers and sisters, Jesus brings that shared horizon. Jesus brings that shared purpose. Jesus brings that vision beyond your relationship that two people can both long to head towards together. You know, in the New Testament, there's this little thing that happens again and again. There's a married couple who we read about who just pop up six times. We never know much about them. It's really interesting. They pop up. They love Jesus. They disappear. All right? Their names are Priscilla and Aquila. We first hear about them in Acts 18.2. is what it says. There, Paul met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, that's in Turkey, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, that's the emperor of Rome, uh, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. So what we first find out about these guys is they're a married couple who have been forced to move overseas because of conflict and persecution back home. Now, the next time we read about them, we hear that they've actually put down some roots. They've settled. Uh, and 
we're going to hear about another guy in this story. Uh, there's another guy, another Jewish man, who has heard about Jesus and become convinced that he's the king. He's the Lord. His name's Apollos. Thoroughly converted, very bright guy. And so he starts going out and proclaiming the gospel, teaching people in the synagogues about who this Jesus is. That's where our story picks up. Uh, but what we soon realise, actually, one more point, uh, is that Apollos, he's got the gospel, but there's some big holes in his theology. All right? This is what we read. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, that's Apollos, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Don't focus on Apollos. That's just the background. Focus on Priscilla and Aquila. What we now see is that this married couple are now investing and partnering and sharing in something bigger than themselves. These guys are doing what we'd call today discipleship, but they're doing it together, and it's intimate. To open your home to someone is to draw them into your life. And this husband and wife have opened their home to share with someone who Jesus is. Now, we hear about these guys again. Last time, essentially, it's in Romans 16, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, but at the end he actually just puts these, um, these comments in his very last chapter of, of greetings that he wants to go out to people. This is what he says. Uh, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ. Uh, they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the church of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Listen to this. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Now, this is five years on from that last little snapshot, and we now read that Priscilla and Aquila have become church planters. They've now opened up their home to actually have 30 people in to do church together. Uh, let me be clear. We have no idea about the level of joy in the marriage of Priscilla and Quilla. We're not told that. But what we do see here is that Jesus has brought them a shared purpose. Their, their love for Jesus has given them a partnership in something bigger than themselves and bigger than their own marriage. Now, Two related questions. How is it, sorry, one related question with two answers. Uh, how is it that a shared purpose actually does bring joy? How does that work? Two things. Firstly, a shared purpose in a marriage takes the pressure off your marriage being the focus of your life. You know, as someone who spends time with young people preparing them to get married, one of our challenges uh, is helping break the Disney mould. Now, if you've been married more than, what, six months? (laughs) You you know that needs to be done, right? You do know the Disney mold, for those of you who uh, may not. Uh, It's this. It's find your prince, marry him, live happily ever after. The problem is no one tells you what happily ever after looks like. And the other problem is you soon find out that you're not married to a prince, but a toad. (laughs) And not a princess, but a princess. Is everyone equally offended? (laughs) All right, good. Here's what a shared purpose does, okay? It lifts your eyes off your marriage and onto something else. You see, there are so many people who get married expecting marriage to be the thing that will make them feel loved and valued and it will be their marriage that finally makes them, uh, gives them their reason for living. I'm married now. I've got this. And you know what? It doesn't. It can't. Marriage was never designed to be that. And so what we do is we load this expectation upon marriage that it's to provide us with something that we so crave, but it can never deliver. It was never designed to. And the problem is, if you set up your marriage as the thing that will make your life worth living, you will crush it with your expectations. And it will break your heart. Do you see what having a shared vision beyond your marriage actually does? It frees you up to love being married 
but not to see marriage as an end in itself, but part of something even greater. A small story, which is just a little sign of the world's greatest story. The story of God loving his people so much that he chose to come and marry them. So that's the first thing that a shared purpose does. But it does something else. It also unites and relativizes. So your shared purpose unites a husband and wife because uh, what you find is that you become attuned, you become sold out, you become agreed upon, made for, committed to the same things. You've heard, haven't you, of people who get divorced over the most ridiculous things. You'll know people, they might even be in your family, who squabble over the most absurd things. The problem in those marriages is not what they disagree over. The problem is they do not know what they agree upon. They don't know what they stand for, what they're united in. And a shared purpose means you don't have to live these separate lives where you squabble at the edges. You live together for something. And Jesus brings the best something. But a shared purpose also relativizes. It puts the things you disagree on in a context. And you're able to see just how important those things really are. Uh, Jesus brings the most wonderful context for your disagreements to be set against, let me say. You know, as Bree and I wrestle with how we're to use our 50 years together, our, our marriage, as we think to ourselves, how is it that we're going to show our four kids that the most important thing is serving Jesus, is following Jesus, is loving Jesus, is speaking of Jesus, is living for Jesus, is, is Jesus? Well, you know what? Sort of every other decision loses its heat and its weight and its power. Uh, what school will they go to? Well, that's an important question. A decision needs to be made, but it becomes relativised when you look at the big picture. Well, my girl plays soccer or the violin. That's a biggie for some, not for us, but for some. But you know what? When you set that in the context of, will my girls love Christ forever? Soccer or violin? Yeah, make a call, but it's relativised. That's what, what a shared purpose does. But Jesus doesn't only bring a shared purpose to marriage. The second thing I said is he brings a shared power. You know, one of the things with being human, all of us, we have this wonderfully attuned ability to stuff relationships up. You've all got it. Uh, there's a thousand ways you can do this. We say things we don't mean. Or we say things we do mean, but we say it the wrong way. Or we say things we do mean, but we say it the wrong time. Or we say things we do mean... Uh, sorry, we say things uh, we mean the right way, but it's heard the wrong way. Or we don't say things when we should, and on it goes. You don't need to be married long. You don't need to be working long. You don't need to be friends with someone long. You don't need to be human long to soon realise that there's got to be a way to address the fact that we stuff relationships up all the time. Now, the Bible tells us that the reason this happens is because ever since people decided they did not need God in their lives, one of the things they lost was this ability to relate to other people in a way that helped relationships to flourish. Now, this is part of what the Bible calls sin. And what sin does is it causes, causes people like me and you to look inwards first, to always look inwards first before I look outwards to God or to anyone else. And Jesus brings a brilliant way to overcome this sickness in my heart and yours that just cripples relationships. In fact, without this, every marriage would die and the divorce rate would be 100%. Jesus brings... Forgiveness and repentance. 
Now, now, of course, that's why Jesus came. You're all sitting there, yeah, big deal. We know that, right? And, of course, that's what a Christian is. Not a churchgoer, not a good person, not a chaste moral do-gooder, but a sinner. That's what a Christian is, a sinner. A sinner who knows they're a sinner. A sinner who knows they're a sinner and who knows that Jesus was not a sinner and actually he died on the cross for their sin. You see, that's what a Christian is. And repentance, that turning from sin and back to Jesus. And forgiveness, having that sin absorbed by another. You know they are the heartbeat of Christianity. And here's the thing. When you have personally experienced those things, when those things have fundamentally changed you as a person, they've changed who you are, they also change the way you relate to others. You see, having been forgiven, you are quicker to forgive. And having repented of sin, you are more gracious of those who repent before you. Now, please do not hear me say that only Christians can find joy in marriage through forgiveness and repentance. No way. Almost everyone knows that actually the way relationships flourish is through forgiveness and repentance. That's why people say sorry, right? Everyone gets this. My point is that Christians should be the best people in the world at seeking forgiveness and asking for repentance. Seeking forgiveness because they know that that's what... uh, they need to do before Jesus. And repenting because they know that's the only way to actually put broken relationships right. Uh, let me finish by making two final points. Today we've been talking about joy in marriage and we've been talking about how Jesus brings joy to marriage. And I do not for a moment want to suggest that if you don't know Jesus or your husband or wife doesn't know Jesus, you can't have joy. I hope you've heard me say that it is actually possible and indeed there are many marriages, many people who have joy, who wrestle with living with others first, who have a shared purpose in their marriage and who have learned that forgiveness and repentance allow their relationship to flourish. And we have lots to learn from them. But it also seems to me that whilst all of those things we've seen today are available and accessible to everyone in some degree, to really know them You see them in Jesus first. They all come from him. You can stumble upon those things blindly or you can simply obey. See, we started, didn't we, by saying that joy in life is found in other person's centeredness, living for others before yourself. What is the clearest example in the history of the world of someone giving their life for someone else? Ask anyone outside of this building. And if they know history, they'll say, well, it's probably that bloke who died on that cross. You know, a thousand, no, it wasn't a thousand, it was two. But yeah, yeah, Jesus, that's right. He didn't die for friends, he died for enemies. That's the clearest model of it ever in history. Then we saw that marriage is empowered and strengthened when there's a shared purpose beyond the marriage itself. Well, friends, you're going to struggle to find a better shared purpose than the bright shared purpose that Jesus brings, where he calls us to partner with him in this story of him putting all things right in this world as we give our lives over to him and then live for him. And then we thought that forgiveness and repentance are crucial aspects of any relationship to make any relationship work. Again, if you were to ask anyone in the history of the world what is the key example in history, you think of forgiveness and repentance. If, again, if they knew history, they'd probably say, Well, it's probably that guy again, Jesus, we talked about before when he said that he forgives people. Yeah, that's right. You see, I hope what we've seen is that Jesus does bring joy to marriage, that knowing him and living for him gives people the ability, the understanding, the power to live like him, to be married for him and to find much joy in that marriage. My final comment, 
and it's a word to those whose marriage brings them much pain. Uh, Every one of us lives in a world that is broken by sin, the Bible tells us. And there are many effects of that, but one of of the effects of that is that you sin, I sin, your spouse's sin, and as a result, life is often very difficult. No one here has a perfect marriage, and despite my claim last week that my last 10 years have been perfect, I need to admit now, they haven't been. No one here has a perfect marriage, certainly not me. Everyone here knows the pain of relationships fractured in one way or another of dreams not being fulfilled, of things not working out how you might have planned or how Disney scripted. And that is why the Bible at the very end paints a picture of a marriage. A marriage that actually is much bigger than all of ours. A marriage that actually encompasses all our messy, imperfect marriages, those marriages that never met their full potential. And we're told there that actually everything is going to be put right in that greatest story that's ever been told. I want the final words of this sermon to be the words of John as he paints a picture of that final marriage, isn't this? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice in the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Jesus brings joy to marriage. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are a broken people who often like to pretend our lives are perfect and neat when often the exact opposite is much closer to the reality. Father, marriage is hard, and it's hard because we're hard. Each one of us is hard. We are difficult to live with. We are sinful. We are selfish. And as much as we long to be other person-centred, as much as we hate our selfishness at times, it is so hard to break. But, Father, the way we break us is by living our lives on our knees before you, constantly looking at you, that wonderful image of humility, constantly looking at you, that wonderful picture of grace and mercy, constantly looking at you, that wonderful picture of forgiveness and mercy. Father, everyone in this room has a different marriage with different challenges and different joys. Will you be Lord of all? Father, I particularly pray for those today who are Christians here, married to those who aren't, who perhaps know a pain, a special pain that others others of us don't. Will you give them a heart, a longing, a desire just to keep praying and praying? Will they be that spouse that quietly lives and reflects the gospel and so challenges their spouse? And Father, will you still bring them joy and help them find other things that they can have a shared purpose in, other things they can walk together through, other ways that they can talk about forgiveness and repentance and the importance of that, even though they can't see that first in Christ. We bring them before you today and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.